Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. In today's episode, Rosita Boland tells me about the short lives and murders of Elizabeth Plunkett and Mary Duffy in the long, hot summer of 1976. Each of their lives meant the same and their loss meant the same to their families. And I mean, all of their families deserve the utmost of compassion because it's all very well for me to say that I should know the names of Mary Duffy and Elizabeth Plunkett, but for their families, it must be incredibly traumatic to be reminded of what happened to their, you know, their sister and their aunt. And, you know, this was this was their family member. Now, there's been very worrying news from Ukraine. I'm sure you're like all of us here, very nervous about what it means for the people there and the ramifications of Putin's invasion. Taoiseach Miel Martin has condemned the Russian attack on Ukraine as indefensible and said Russia will pay a high price for the act of aggression. As you know, Ukraine's president has declared martial law and urged citizens not to panic as Russia launched military strikes on the country, while the country's foreign minister called it a full-scale invasion. And Russian President Vladimir Putin announced the action during a televised address early on Thursday morning, saying the move was a response to threats from Ukraine. But the Taoiseach said, I utterly condemn in the strongest possible terms Russia's indefensible attack on the sovereign people of Ukraine. So we'll obviously be keeping an eye on that. And it is, as I said, just very worrying. Elsewhere in the world, we were really delighted to see this week women and campaigners celebrating on the streets of Colombia, celebrating the news that Colombia has decriminalised abortion during the first 24 weeks of pregnancy, adding to a recent string of legal victories for reproductive rights in Latin America. And at a time when things are so bad in America, in North America, it really is heartening to see this. Um, the South American country's constitutional court ruled five against four to decriminalise the procedure on Monday evening. And it follows a series of rulings in Mexico and Argentina that lowered barriers to abortion. Previously, abortion in Colombia was allowed only when there was a risk to life or health of the pregnant mother, the existence of life-threatening fetal malformations, or when the pregnancy was the result of rape, incest or non-consensual artificial insemination. Uh, and Erica Guevara Rosas, America's director at Amnesty International, said we celebrate this ruling as a historic victory for the women's movement in Colombia that has fought for decades for the recognition of their rights. Women, girls and people able to bear children are the only ones who should make decisions about their bodies. Now, instead of punishing them, the Colombian authorities will have to recognise their autonomy over their bodies and life plans. So we are delighted to hear that. Before I bring you this episode, I just want to tell you about our bonus book 
Club episode, which will be dropping into your feeds on Sunday. The Book Club is going to be a bonus episode every couple of months. And this time we read The Herd by Emily Edwards. It's a debut novel about the controversial issue of vaccinations. So look out for that on Sunday. But back to today's podcast, which is all about the short lives and the brutal murders of two women. You might not know their names, but they were Elizabeth Plunkett from Ringsend in Dublin and Mary Duffy from County Mayo. These women were both 23. They were both abducted, raped, tortured and murdered in the summer of 1976 by two Englishmen in their 30s who became known as Ireland's first serial killers. And you might have seen a really excellent report written in the Irish Times by Rosita Boland at the weekend. She went into forensic detail about what happened to these women. Rosita, as you know, was the reporter who uncovered much more of the story of Anne Lovett's life and death than we had previously known. We invited her on to tell us what happened to Elizabeth Plunkett and Mary Duffy, women I hadn't myself heard of until I read Rosita's piece. I began by asking her where she first came across the story. And just to say that there's a lot of content in this podcast that is quite harrowing and difficult. And um, just to say, if you are affected by any of the issues, the Rape Crisis Centre or any of those agencies would be people to get in touch with. But here she is, Rosita, on Elizabeth Plunkett and Mary Duffy. I admit that I had never heard of these two women either. And they were both murdered in the late summer of 1976. And it was actually um, a commission. One of my editors asked me to look into the story. So I came very fresh to it. And the reason why I suppose the story is back in the news again is because one of the two murders, uh, one is dead now, but uh, one is still alive, John Shaw, who is about 75. And he sought and was granted two days supervised day release uh, some years ago. And he hasn't yet actually received any of those days. So he took another appeal earlier in this year in January, again, seeking to get those two days. So we'll see where that ends up. So in previous years, they had been, when he got his two days, they were then turned down by the then Minister for Justice, Francis Fitzgerald. The next time he appealed, they were approved by uh, Charlie Flanagan, who was who succeeded Francis Fitzgerald as Minister for Justice. And as things stand now, he still not, has not had any of those days, but he is again um, making an appeal to get those two days supervised release a year. Okay, well, let's go back to the 1970s. Um, You wrote this very detailed report uh, about these two young Irish women, both aged 23. And it struck me that that was the age Ashling Murphy was as well. Um, They were both 23, both living in different sides of the country and both raped and murdered by these two British men. These men, Geoffrey Evans and John Shaw, had travelled here from England. So why did they come here, Rosita? They came to Ireland in 1974. They met in prison. They were both from Greater Manchester area. They met in prison in Britain and they were really career criminals from the age of 14. They had been burgling. They had also separately committed various uh, sexual assaults. They weren't in jail for those assaults. They Their charges were burglary, but they met each other there 
and they were released and they decided that they would go to Ireland basically because there was heat on to bring them to face charges of uh, sexual assault and rape. While in prison, they had decided to, I suppose, team up or buddy up or whatever the expression is for something as grotesque as what they did. But they had this, they had this plan that they wanted to abduct, rape, torture and murder women sequentially. And it's to Ireland that they fled in 1974 and they started their time in Ireland by house burglaries, mostly in in Wicklow and also around the Cork area because they needed to fund themselves. So they were caught pretty soon, um, pretty soon, maybe that a few months and they were sentenced to 18 months in Mountjoy and they didn't serve out their entire term. They were each released before the end of that time. And Shaw was was released first and then Evans. And while in Mountjoy, they had met another uh, prisoner called Cliff Outram, who lived in Feathered, County Tipperary. And it was to his home in Feathered they went when they were released from Mountjoy. And that was in August 1976. So uh, basically after they got out of prison, their plan that they'd hatched or their plot or whatever you want to call it had still stayed alive in their minds and they were still intent on going and finding these victims. And they ended up in uh, Wicklow. Tell me about 23-year-old Elizabeth Plunkett and what did we know about her and how she ended up being their first victim? So she was uh, 23 years of age. She worked for this printing company that is, I know, now defunct, uh, Delarue. I hadn't heard of them before. She was a really beautiful woman. But the pictures don't do her justice at all because I've seen other, other pictures. And she's a really beautiful young woman. She was had met her boyfriend, a young man called Damien Bush, through his sister Mela, who worked with her. And herself and Mela had been on holidays to Saint-Tropez just a couple of weeks before. And because the because it was such a hot summer, everybody was availing of, you know, the good weather. And she and her boyfriend and five other friends decided that they'd go to British Bay. They had friends who owned caravans there. And she was from Rings End in, in Dublin, that's right, isn't it? Yes, from Pembroke Cottages. And she had a number of brothers and sisters. So uh, her boyfriend picked her up and they drove to British. And I didn't put this in the piece because it was all a bit too long and convoluted to get into it. But one set of keys they'd left behind in Dublin. So somebody had to go back and get them. So that's they all went to wait in the pub um, in McDaniel's while the keys were being retrieved from Dublin. And it just so happened, you know, there was perfectly ordinary conversation between Damien Bush and a mate of his about some ding-dong about a car. And, you know, the conversation got heated and she, you know, Elizabeth just got, asked them to stop arguing and said that they'd come down for a weekend and enjoy themselves and not be having a row and they, you know, they didn't listen to her. So she just got up and, and walked off. And she apparently didn't take her bag with her. She left it behind in the bar. 
and she started walking in the direction of McDaniel's caravan park. So we can only assume that she was going, you know, she was going to go back back to base, you know, and wait for whoever was getting the key. That's that's you know, that's where she was headed. Meanwhile, Evans and Shaw were in a car that they borrowed from Cliff Outram in Tipperary and they knew the area because they had performed house robberies in that part of Wicklow previously. And they were basically they were they were driving and they were they were looking for they were actively looking for a victim. And they had this plan. They saw her uh, they saw her leaving the bar by herself and they had this they had this planned out beforehand that one man offering a lift would look less intimidating than two together. So Shaw got out of the car and he, you know, he kind of uh, melted into the background and Evans offered her a lift and, uh, you know, said he was going to Dublin. And so she got in and a little bit further down the road, the car stopped and picked up Shaw who got into the back seat. So now there were two of them. And it is, I think, something we need to remember about this story is that we only have the men's statements for evidence as what happened during any of that period. And each of the men gave statements to the guards. By the time they were given their statements, they were each trying to blame the other. We will really never know what went on. But according to their statements... They drove as far, it's about, it's a forestry plantation, Castle Tymon. Um, it's about a mile outside Britis. And they stopped there. There was a, some kind of track into the woods. And at that point, Elizabeth Plunkett must have been incredibly alarmed. And uh, they basically forced her out of the car. And they proceeded to uh, each took turns to rape her and just I mean it, it's we still you know as I said we only we really will never really know what happened to Elizabeth at one point one of the men went back to move the car because they didn't want attention to be drawn to it uh, being parked where it was and I suppose in the 1970s probably much fewer cars around now then than there would be now so it would attract attention and one man stayed back with her and by the time Evans came back the next day again we only have his all word for this he'd fallen asleep in the car and he walked back to the campsite and Elizabeth had been strangled with one of the shirt sleeves belonging to to Evans. So then they had to decide what they were going to do with her body and they decided that they would dispose of it in the sea. And it 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 just is it just really is um I mean, it's hard to comprehend all of the things that these two men did to the women that they abducted. They left her body there in the wood and they went off and actually broke into more caravans, stole 
portable television, sleeping bags, money, and they scoped out the general area. They saw that there were boats tied up and they kind of lay low to darkness. And that evening they returned to get her her body. She was wearing a Seiko watch she'd got for her 21st birthday. They threw that into the undergrowth. They, her shoes were already gone. They threw away her underwear. They took her to this boat that they that broke the padlock on it. They broke into the boathouse and got oars. And they stole a, a lawnmower. And, I mean, it's all just horrendous. They've stripped her naked because they didn't want any identifying uh, objects on her, whether it was jewellery or her clothes. Um, and they rode out and they attached the lawnmower to her and they threw her overboard. And they stayed around then for another day. They burnt her clothes in the car park. They were actually seen by a guard. They gave false names. It's astonishing that they, you know, remained around, I suppose. And then they headed back to, headed back to Tipperary. And Rosita, like 15 minutes after um, Elizabeth had walked out of that pub, you know, annoyed with her boyfriend who wouldn't stop arguing, the alarm was raised to to a degree because that's when the friends all went back to the caravan side, realised she wasn't there. So they'd been searching for her all that night and the following morning. It's just it's it's almost just the, the narrow window of, of when she disappeared. It's it's really, really sad because they knew she was missing very quickly, but they just couldn't find her. It's like she disappeared. No, they couldn't find her. And there were other people who saw her when she was walking and. You know, she was seen when she left the when she left the pub and there, you know, people came forward later between they each had separate trials, the, the two men, but there were more than 180 witnesses that were called, which is a a very large number of people. And they were they were hunting for somebody and poor Elizabeth Plunkett, it was it was she who it was she who was their um it was she who was their victim and it was a very hard story to work on because I don't know, I, I, how could you read these? I, I read many um, different reports from newspapers, different uh, newspaper reports of the time of the trial and a lot of detail came out in statements and witnesses and it was incredibly disturbing and horrible just absolutely horrible to read and I suppose another thing that really struck me was a lot of the reporting was I wouldn't say buried but it was very rarely front page news which I don't know what that says about the 1970s but even though these crimes were absolutely horrendous they were you know they were quite often not on the front page while the trial was going on or else there would be maybe a, a tiny little paragraph on the front page and it would link somewhere inside and you know as we all know the front page of a newspaper really meant something in 1970s because obviously there was no digital media nothing like that so it says something about how the editors at the time treated stories like that um I don't know it just it just struck me 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. These were, as they're called, Ireland's first serial killers. So they went off to their mate's house in Tipperary again almost to regroup. And they, But they weren't finished. I mean, their plan was to keep going, finding more women, murdering and, and raping more women. So what did they do next? So they basically, they needed some more money and they needed fake identities. So they rocked up to Clonmel and applied for a provisional driving licenses under false names and they gave uh, Cliff Outram's address and Feathered as, as their address and they they were given these licenses. So they now had, a, a, you know, they now had bona fide, if you like, fake ID. So at some point anyway, Cliff Outram drove them to Limerick and that was actually the day that they were meant to be in the Bridewell in Dublin. They had been released on on bonds from... Mountjoy for forty pounds, and they were they were being given a month to come back to explain why they shouldn't be extradited to Britain, because at this point the British police were catching up with the fact that they were now in Ireland. So the very day they were meant to be in the Bridewell is the day that he drove them to Limerick. And from there they made their way to Galway in Barna. They bought a caravan for three hundred thirty pounds. They spent some time doing more burglaries. They stole a number plate from a car in Cork. Then they stole a Cortina in Clifton, um, which was green, and they put the false number plates on it. And they then they painted it black. It was a very, apparently a very crude job. And in all of this, you know, they seem not to have been very bright either because it was a very obvious amateurish job repainting this car and the fact that they both have British accents made them stand out I suppose in rural Ireland uh, in the 1970s and the car you know if you saw a like a homemade paint job in a car you, you'd definitely remember that so even though they were trying to disguise the car they were in a way drawing attention to it so yeah, I don't understand that. But anyway, that's what they did. And how did they come across Mary Duffy? Tell me about her. So they'd scoped out places around Connemara, around Balnahinch and Loch Ina, and places that are still very remote and very, very thinly populated. They stopped at Mam Cross to buy three pounds of petrol. And the man there, Mam Cross, is still today 
literally there's nothing there except, you know, the it's peacocks now, but the, you know, petrol pump. It's a one building stop. So the man who, who served them remembered their accents, noticed the car so crudely painted and noted down the registration of the car. But it wasn't until the next day he actually told the guards. So when they left Mount Cross, they drove north and they arrived in Castlebar in darkness. And as they arrived into town, Mary Duffy, who also was 23, she was leaving. She had two jobs, so she worked in a shop and she also worked as a cook in the coffee shop on Ellison Street. And she finished up her shift at 11 o'clock that night. And her usual routine was either a customer in the coffee shop gave her a lift home. She lived five miles away on the family farm or her brother who worked in a garage gave her a lift. And she went to a phone box and called the garage, left a message with his employer. Uh, her brother was out trying to start a customer's car. So she left a message that she'd start walking towards um, the crossroads at, at uh, Brafie, which was where the, the turnoff was for their home in Belcara. And that's, so that's what she did. So she was walking alone and she was walking through the town and she wasn't going to walk home. She was she was walking to an arranged point um, where she was going to meet her brother, where she probably had met him many times before. And again, Shaw and Evans were there. Evans drove the car. Shaw got out of it. They parked it in an area of the town of, of Castlebar. And I had a look at the census of what the town population was back in 1976. And it was about 6,000, so small, like it was very small. And the car was parked on a street where there was houses either side. And when she drew alongside to the car, Shaw uh, came up behind her and he punched her so hard in the face that her dental plate um, fell out of her mouth and was later identified by her dentist as as belonging to hers. Because as we know, they're all made uniquely for each person. So they're... Uh, you know, they can be identified. So she had a dental plate to replace a, a missing tooth and and that was what happened. First of all, the, the, the blow was so hard that it knocked it out and it was left on the ground. It was left on the footpath and she screamed as, as he shoved her into the car and people heard. Um, they looked out their windows. These are all witnesses who gave statements at the trial later. Um, at least four people saw the car, heard her screaming. It was about half 11 at night by then. And Evans, you know, he he drove the car away and just drove as fast as possible. It's the little details in your story that you managed to unearth. Tell me about what she was carrying and just give us this, whatever picture we can of this woman, Mary Duffy. She had a red polo neck and a red duffel coat that, that was, everybody wore duffel coats back in the 70s and 80s. She had jeans and boots and she had a little brown plastic handbag and she and her sister shared a makeup bag and later in court um, her sister with whom she shared a bedroom identified this makeup bag and they they shared the mascara and the eyeshadow and also in her bag was a little purse with um, rosary beads in it and this is what she was carrying with her 
A very hardworking young woman, like you said, she had that job in the in the daytime and then she had the night job cooking. And so a very sort of ordinary but independent life, doing her own thing, working hard, saving her money, I presume. And then she has the misfortune to to just come across these guys. And and the thing is, her brother, who was going to give her a lift, probably passed the Cortina as she was smuggled away at high speed. Well, actually, we don't know what I don't know what area he was coming in from. But as he was driving in, they were driving away. And what what is reported as in their statements as what they did to Mary Duffy is incredibly disturbing. And they basically took turns to get into the back seat and uh, rape her. She asked at one point she that they wouldn't hurt her. Um, and they drove towards the place that they had uh, scoped out to have their camp, which is in a very remote part of Connemara near Balnehinch. And they had the tent that they'd stolen from the caravans in British and their sleeping bags. Um, and basically, they the, that's where the tent was. That's where they, it was very isolated. There wasn't anybody around. Um, and really what they 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 tortured her, they beat her, they raped her, they tied her to a tree and left her there and all through the night and then in the morning Evans went back to the caravan in Barna. All of the caravans in the caravan park were, as was the custom at the time, propped up on concrete blocks. And there were extra ones, you know, basically just lying around the the caravan park. And he took one of these. It was all premeditated. He put it into the boot. And as he did, some of the black paint from the really terrible job they'd done on painting the car came off on it. He made some cheese sandwiches. He bought some barley water. He got Valium from the caravan and he drove back and... Drove back to the site and by the time in his statement, he said when he came back that Mary Duffy was missing some teeth, that she had a gash over one of her temples. Um, the state pathologist later said that there was bruising on her shoulder and upper arm, which would be consistent with being held down by somebody who was right-handed. And... Then he uh, he he uh, he raped her again, and she'd been abducted maybe twenty four hours earlier by then. And he offered her one of these cheese sandwiches, which she didn't eat, um, and barley water. And there are so many horrendously painful moments in this story and one of them is when because later when they were captured they brought the police to the scenes of all of these horrific crimes and they pointed out to the police a log on which uh, Mary had been sitting during that day and their fishermen had passed nearby but she didn't see them because her back was to them so she didn't call for help but yet again it's another one of those tiny moments where everything could have been different in the same way that, you know, later, much later in Wicklow, Larry Murphy's victim in Wicklow was found by the men who were out hunting. If they hadn't been out at that time and they hadn't 
seen what was happening, that would have been another horrific crime. But she didn't see them and she didn't call out. And at that point, it was dark and their plan was to murder the women after they had had finished torturing and raping them. And uh, Mary was suffocated and then strangled. And they were on the shores of Loch Ina. And so that's where they decided to dispose of her body. And again, they had to take all her clothes off. She was wearing two rings. One was a little, a ring with a birthstone and the other was a gold signet ring, which apparently was common for girls of that time to get as a confirmation gift. And my own sister, who would have been somewhat younger than Mary, she had, she has one of these signet rings and still actually wears it. So that's kind of why I knew what it was. Uh, they threw the rings into the undergrowth. They were later found by the guards using metal detectors. They brought her body to a boathouse, uh, broke into the boathouse and stole a, uh, a grappling iron and a sledgehammer. And they basically tied these items onto her and they rode out in darkness out into Loch Ina. And Loch Ina is, Loch Ina in Connemara, it's basically, it's all bog and mountains and the underside of the lake is, it's basically bog. It's, um, it later took divers, 35 divers, almost two weeks working around the clock to find her body, even though they knew roughly where it was, which tells you how horrendous the conditions were down there and how, you know, they were, they were basically in, in a massive bog hole trying to find her. And tell me then, because at the same time when this was happening, there was, or I suppose there was a manhunt going on because the Gardaí had realised they were searching for these two men. Some of them, um, Elizabeth Plunkett's belongings had been found in, in Wicklow. And uh, that man that you mentioned earlier, he had given the guards the information about the car licence plate and the bad paint job. And they were, they were searching for these, for these men who were probably on the hunt for their next person. Yes, so when they were, uh, when Agartha um, questioned them, when they were back in, in British burning some of Elizabeth Plunkett's clothes, they gave false names to him. They gave them as John and Geoffrey Murphy. And when the guards found some of Elizabeth Plunkett's clothes in Castle Tymon, they also found a homemade luggage label with G. Murphy on it. And this was what... Jeffrey Evans had left some suitcases in Houston Station and when the two of them had driven up in the car that they'd borrowed from Cliff Outram, they'd gone to Houston and retrieved these from the left luggage. And so the connection was made between the two men with British accents who'd given name their names as John Jeffrey Murphy and the luggage tag with G. Murphy. And so they now had a physical description and they had, you know, they had names, even though they weren't the correct names. They they knew that they were looking for two men with these British accents. And then the man who'd sold them the three pounds of petrol at Mam Cross uh, on their way to Castle Bar, he called the guardie the next day, gave them the registration number of the car, the description of the men. So by then, the guards were very sure that the two cases were linked of the two missing women and... 
they were by then on the on the lookout for a car of this description, two men of this description, and they had the uh, they had the registration plate. So all stations all over the country were on high alert, looking out for these men. And that, in fact, is how they were found in the end. They were in the uh, hotel, which is uh, no longer there now in, in Salt Hill, drinking. They'd left their cortina out on the main street and uh, eagle-eyed Garda um, from the local Salt Hill station spotted it. Um, he sent his colleague for back up from the nearby station and sat in a kind of a cul-de-sac waiting to see who was going to come out. So the two men did come out of the hotel. It seems that they were on the lookout for someone else. They'd been going backwards and forwards to the caravan in Barna. And anyway, when they got into the car, this guard basically apprehended them and he was soon joined by, you know, his backup colleagues in Salt Hill. So... They were taken into custody and from then on, they never knew a day's freedom. And they've been in prison ever since. Evans died when aged 68 of sepsis in St. Mary's Hospital in uh, Dublin on May 20th, 2012. He was in a vegetative state. But Shaw, the other man, is now 75 and he's in Arbor Hill Prison, as you said at the beginning. And he's tried to get released uh, through parole and um, he's been recommended parole, but he's never seen it. And I suppose that's like where we started, is that um, that's why the story has come back into into the kind of public domain again. Well, he, he sought parole, but that has been consistently turned down because he still apparently poses a danger to women. But what he did get was... Um, an agreement for two days supervised release a year, none of those days of which he's got yet. But I think we can very safely say that he will never, ever be granted um, parole. He will never be out in Irish society again. But these two days, I suppose, that's what we're still waiting to see. Yes, these two days, it is a fact that he was um, granted these two days and also that he's never had any of these days yet. So he's currently appealing that and you know we'll have to see what the outcome of that is if he did get those days he would be accompanied by one or two prison officers at all times he would be going back to arbor hill in the evening it isn't as if he would be you know here's the door and you can go out for 48 hours it would not be like that Uh, but he still would have liberty to be outside and you know he possibly have a choice of where he wants to go, if he wants to go to the sea. or I don't know what happens on those kind of day release um, parole, but he would be supervised at all times. And anyway, he hasn't got any of those days yet, but he is appealing. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, you know, I started by saying I didn't know their names, Elizabeth Plunkett and Mary Duffy. I didn't know them before. I'm glad uh, however gruesome and horrific the details are of how they their lives were, were ended, um, I'm still I'm glad we know their names now and that we're honouring them to a degree by talking about them and uh, that they were women. And it makes me think of all the missing women that we don't know what happened to them. You know, I'm thinking of Jojo Dullard and Deirdre Jacob and Kira Breen and Fiona Pender. And there's a whole lot of Irish women who went missing and a whole lot of them in the 90s. Um, we don't know what's happened and it's really important that we find their stories, but like, you know, in a way, will we ever? For their families, we can only hope that they will be 
found someday and also when they are found the fact of where they're found is going to give some clues as to how they ended up there and that might help solve the mystery of their disappearance so there are so many reasons why you know we we all hope that the bodies of those women will be found and we do know their names and there are so many there are names of so many other women that we don't know but we do at least know well, I certainly know now the names of Mary Duffy and Elizabeth Plunkett. And it's just very ironic that I was researching the story at the time that Ashley Murphy was murdered because she too was 23. And they were all three of them women who were just going about their ordinary business. One was going for a run. One was um, walking home from work. And one was on holiday with her friends. They were doing perfectly normal, ordinary things and each of those women um, were murdered by men. Yeah. And like you said, the fact that they that the cases of Elizabeth Plunkett and Mary Duffy didn't, you know, warrant the headlines and the kind of constant coverage that we would expect now. That is something that has changed, that hopefully uh, people's attitude towards women's lives is better uh, in these circumstances that we we've we had so much coverage of Ashley Murphy and her name means something and we heard it. It didn't happen with Elizabeth Plunkett and Mary Duffy, but that's something that's changed, I suppose. Yes, it is. And uh, I don't know how much of that is, is, you know, historical kind of social context of the time and how murders in general were reported. But it is a fact that the, there was nothing like the media coverage in the 1970s and uh, and later when the trials were on that there was for for Ashling Murphy and it's interesting to reflect on that each of their lives meant the same and their loss meant the same to their families and though I mean all of their families deserve the utmost of compassion because it's all very well for me to say that I should know the names of Mary Duffy and Elizabeth Plunkett, but for their families, um, it must be incredibly traumatic to be reminded of what happened to their, you know, their sister and their aunt. And, you know, this was this was their family member. And writing the story that I did on Saturday, it, it comes at a cost to family members and... It's a really difficult sort of ethical dilemma. Um, what's in the public interest and to what extent do you you need to be mindful and respectful of families? But I do think that the murder of any young woman is completely in the public interest, no matter when it happened. And I think you're right. And thank you very much for your very careful and very detailed reporting, because like you say, it wasn't an easy story to do. But thanks for coming on the podcast to tell us about it. Thank you for having me on to talk about the story, Rosine. That's all we have time for. Thanks to Rosita Boland. And if you want to read Rosita's story on those gruesome murders, you can find it on irishtimes.com. You can get in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast. We're on Instagram or Twitter. And we're on email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. That's it for me. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 